Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for September 2013. My name is George Miller, and I'm very pleased to say that my guest in this program is the award-winning theatre director Michael Blakemore. Michael arrived in England from Australia in 1950 and spent 15 years as an actor before turning to directing. His first major success was A Day in the Death of Joe Egg, which transferred to the London stage from the Glasgow Citizens. As well as acclaimed productions of classics, his work has also embraced new plays by dramatists as diverse as Arthur Miller, David Hare, Peter Schaffer and David Mamet. He directed many premieres of plays by Michael Frayn, including Noises Off and Copenhagen. His most recent productions are Democracy at the National, Three Sisters in the West End and on Broadway, Blythe Spirit. This month sees a publication of Stage Blood, Michael's account of his five years at the National Theatre in the early 1970s. There were years of success for him, notably his productions of Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night with Laurence Olivier, and The Front Page, an American comedy set in the world of newspapers. But there were also years of turbulence, as Olivier's era as artistic director at the National came to an end, and that of Peter Hall began. Hall would run the company very differently from his predecessor, which would eventually lead Michael Blakemore to a showdown with his boss, and scenes every bit as tense and dramatic as anything the company put on stage. The book, which is full of good stories, is in part about the big personalities who dominated British theatre in the 70s, as well as Olivier and Hall, other luminaries such as Ken Tynan, Harold Pinter, Anthony Hopkins and Peter O'Toole feature in its pages. But it's also about the competing views of what kind of theatre the national should be, what subsidised theatre is for, and what part it should play in the theatrical life of the country, questions which remain relevant today. But back to the stage blood. Michael says in the preface to the book that the idea of writing it dates back to the immediate aftermath of his resignation, and his determination to put the story down on paper was made all the stronger by the publication in 1983 of Peter Hall's diaries. So why, I began by asking him, is it only now that the story is seeing the light of day? Well, the reason is that my profession is as theatre director. I'd written a novel before I started directing, uh, which gave me enormous pleasure, and uh, it's actually still in print in America with a publisher called uh, Applause next season. But once I started directing, there wasn't really time to write, and in the theatre you've got to follow the breaks as they come. But when the diaries came out, because I felt they did very much misrepresent me and paint me in a rather pitiful light, I knew that eventually I had to correct this impression. So I would work on the book intermittently. And as I said, it, it got longer and longer because I, I found I needed to write about the years leading up to my time at the National. So that became another book, Arguments with England, that came out four or five years ago, longer perhaps. And then suddenly I found I had some time on my hands. And uh, so I settled down to the book and pushed it through. At any time, did you think, let bygones be bygones, it's a long time in the past, I'll do other things, I have other things I want to get on with, and, and just forget about the, those events? Well, not I didn't really, because the, the things that concern me, it isn't me settling scores for Peter Hall, it's really what the national is for and i'd given some years of my life with olivier to pursuing a sort of ideal of what the theater should be and i thought it was taken in the wrong direction mark you it's very much back on course now with nick heitner in charge who i think is running it brilliantly 
But I thought I could make the book also a reflection on the purposes of the subsidised area. That's why I pursued it. And also, of course, it was a terrific story. I think that was more than anything else, the fact that I, uh, the fact that I pursued, uh, pursued the idea of the book, because it, it is a thrilling yarn and is all true. And you have the sort of you have the sort of the old monarch and the young pretender. You have the two regimes, don't yes, you? you do. Which is and and more than that, you have a very sharply contrasted view of what the subsidised theatre is about, what yes, it's for. Exactly, that's exactly right. No, I mean it's no wonder that the theatre uh, drama is all about kings and queens and the the fall of tyrants and uh, usurpers and that whole world, because in a way the theatrical milieu in a very minor and without bloodshed reflects that exactly. That's, that's, that's your title. That's my title, Stage Blood, yes. Now, when the phone message came in 1970, Michael, from, from Laurence Olivier, inviting you to become an associate director of the eight-year-old National, as it was then, Readers might think, what a magnificent opportunity, grasp it with both hands. But it was more complicated than that. You had to think about it in the context of of your career and and the theatre and what you were taking on. So tell me a little bit about what questions were going through your mind when that call came inviting you to join the National. Well, originally when the National was founded, it had a period of extraordinary success and there's some brilliant work done. Uh, Larry gave some great performances. John Dexter and... uh, uh, William Gaskell did some wonderful productions, um, but like all theatres uh, regimes, because you have to work so hard maintaining a place like the National, by the time I was invited to join, it had got rather tired. And I knew it was running into a bad patch through nobody's fault. It's just the cyclical nature of theatrical success. And I want, I was very, quite interested in aspects of the commercial theatre, not not the commercial theatre in the sense of making money, but of popular theatre is maybe a better way of saying it, of musicals and comedies and things whose proper place was perhaps on the West End. I was also more interested in new work than I was in revivals of classics. So I didn't really think that I was ideally cast to be an associate director of the National. I'd done previously made my name with plays like uh, A Day in the Death of Joe Egg and The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, the Breck play in which Leonard Rossiter had an enormous success. And that wasn't quite what The National was about. But on the other hand, I revered Olivier and it was a terrific opportunity and I hoped I would be useful. So ultimately, after thinking about it, I said yes. And it hadn't, of course, moved into its home at the South Bank. That was on the horizon. It was, it was under construction at that time. Right. So it was inevitably facing questions about how it was, what it was going to grow into and, and what it was going to be for going forward. So there, there, were big, there were big things at stake. Very big things at stake. The, the amount of money the National would cost exceeded anything that Britain had so far expended in the way of subsidising theatre. It was a huge undertaking. And again, I, I had misgivings because I thought the, the, the South Bank building, though a magnificent building, was maybe a bit too big. And I also thought that trying to run three theatres rather than simply two would stretch the limits of the organisation beyond the point where it was a satisfactory community. 
In other words, when I'd worked at the Glasgow Citizens Theatre, we had two theatres. We had a main house and we had a little experimental house. And when a first night came up in either house, the whole mind of the organisation was on it because it was something we, we could comprehend. But I thought if you're trying to get three shows up every so often, there's a possibility the organisation might fragment and divide into little fiefdoms and things. I, so I, 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 none of us knew whether it was going to work. We hoped it would. We trusted it would, but we didn't know. And was working with Olivier and the, the prospect of directing him, was that a, a big enticement or was that, was that also a worry in the back of your mind? Well, it was uh, only a worry to the extent that I, I, I knew I had to sort of stand my ground with him because I did admire him so much and because he had been the most influential person in my late adolescence and early manhood to make me decide to go into the theatre. He'd come out to Australia with three great performances in Richard III, Skin of Our Teeth and School for Scandal and I'd seen them all and been absolutely bowled over. And like a lot of Australians, we jumped on the next boat and came straight to England to become part of this amazing thing called theatre because these were productions of a quality we hadn't ever seen in our lives before. So it was, I thought, something of an honour to be asked to go to the National Theatre. But at the same time, certainly when it came to directing him, I was a little bit nervous about that because it seemed almost an impertinence. In the event, it, it wasn't because getting on plays is a very practical business and you soon rub shoulders every day and you, you soon have a common goal. So how was it decided what your first, what your directorial debut at the National was going to be? Well, I'd already done a, a play, a freelance play at the National, which was The National Health by Peter Nichols, uh, which was a, a very big success and which won the Evening Standard Award for that year and a number of other awards. But the problem where Olivier was concerned is that he didn't really like the play very much. He put it on, which is very much to his credit, but he didn't really like it. And as a freelance director, I'd had a number of issues where we were on different sides of the argument. And I didn't want to fight with him, but I knew if I joined the organisation, I probably would have to if I was to be of any use. And that indeed occasionally proved the case. So, long day's journey into night. How did how how was that selected as the the, the well, play in which you was, directed uh, Olivier? Well, uh, Ken, who was also was a great admirer of Olivier's, had always thought he would be marvellous in the leading part. Larry himself, possibly because he'd seen Gwen Frank and Davis's great performance in the in the first production in England, thought that the play really belonged to the woman, and he didn't like the idea of playing an actor. He felt that was too self-conscious for him. Uh, and he shied away from it. And then the National went into a two-theatre operation in preparation for the move to the South Bank. And uh, we had a series of semi-successes and flops at the new theatre, which is now the Noel Coward Theatre. And suddenly we had to have something which was really solid. And anything that he appeared in drew a crowd. And rather against his will, uh, when Ken brought up the matter of long day's journey into night, he said, oh, okay, I'll do it, very reluctantly. He'd also not been well, and it was it's a huge part, you know. The running time of the play was about four and a half hours, uh, 
and he had at least a quarter of that text. And uh, he wasn't too keen about the part, and but he did it, really, for the sake of the national, because we needed a hit, and his participation could guarantee it. And there's a marvellous story in the book about you taking the cast to the Donmar warehouse where the set had been erected in order for them to familiarise themselves with it. Well, the thing is that Olivier had had a crisis of competence when he was doing Othello, something he'd never had in his life before. And he had a sudden terror that he would forget his words. And it had been quite serious, so that he had to be tranquilized, I think, to, to give a performance in the evenings. Then he did a production, a performance of Shylock in The Merchant of Venice with Jonathan Miller, with whom he got on very, very well. And he got his nerve back. But he went into Long Day's Journey, this enormous part, with the spectre of his crisis of competence in the background. And he also had, as all actors do, past 60, much more difficulty learning his lines, and not so much learning them, but be able to collect them to say in performance. So he, he went into, the, into Long Day's Journey with a, a degree of anxiety. And as the first night approached, and the show was beginning to look extremely good, and his performance was beginning to look absolutely magnificent, he almost began to wonder who he was, this man on whom the whole theatre community of the world looked for extraordinary moments. And also an actor like that is, he's not merely sort of strengthened by his past work, he's also threatened by it. Can he pull it off? Can he pull it off again? And one day we went to the Donmar warehouse to see the set. And it's rather frightening for actors who've been working in a rehearsal room with no set, just taped lines on the floor, to suddenly confront the reality of where they will be having to perform the play. It's threatening. So we went up and there in the corner of the Donmar warehouse, which was then a huge rehearsal space, sat the set. And we were, the actors went along and they opened the doors and raised the windows and sat in the seats and got comfortable. And I said, since we're here, we've got, we've got 20 minutes, why don't we run the first 10 minutes of the play just to get comfortable? So they said, all right, and this play begins on an empty set family in the, in the, in the uh, dining room finishing breakfast. We hear laughter and then in walk the husband and wife, Laurence Olivier and Connie Cummings, and come in and begin the play. So I said curtain up. We heard laughter and then on came the man and his wife and launched in confidently into the scene and they'd only got about five lines in when Olivier dried, totally forgot his lines. And I said, well, don't worry, we'll go to, go, let's go back to the beginning and we'll run it again and it'll come back and we'd shown him what the line was. We did it again and at exactly the same point, he dried and everybody was getting a little tense in the room because this was a four hour play. And so I said, well, let's go back again and we'll try, have another try. So back they went and they came out, came on and did the lines, the same point, silence. And we had one more shot, I think, exactly the same thing. And then he looked at me, he was looking quite shaken, and he looked up at me and he looked very grey, and he smiled weakly and said, I think I've got stage fright. 
And it was a frightening moment because he was at the, the key to the whole evening and, and his uh, regime would have been under threat. But we, we then went away. God knows what sort of a night he had. I didn't have a very good one. Uh-huh. And I'm sure neither did the other actors. But they were very nice with him and they rallied round and he came in to the, and we did the dress rehearsal the following day or began the dress rehearsal and he was pretty good on his lines and he got over it. And you, I, thought, I thought the way you handled the rest of the cast was rather masterful because you must, as you say, you must have been losing a lot of sleep and been really worried about how this was going to go. But you realised you had to settle the nerves of the rest of the cast and I thought you handled that very well. Oh, that's good. That's good. No, I took them out. I, I seized a moment in the break between our evening work and our afternoon work and whipped them round to the pub, the other three members of the cast. And I told them that they had, to, they had to stop being anxious about him. They had to be selfish and look after their own parts because they couldn't actually help him. He could only help himself. And the best way they could help him was to attend to their own responsibilities and be quite tough about it. Not be, not be upset if he dried. Think about their work. And uh, that's what they did. And the first night was one of the most exciting first nights I've ever had. The, the first night and subsequent nights, it, it went on to be a great success. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, it was a, it, it was an, an, a terrific triumph for him. Uh, this huge part to pull it off, carrying the burdens of previous illnesses. You know, he'd been quite ill in previous years. He'd had cancer and he had a thrombosis and he got over those things. But that was really why he was replaced without him being told that Peter Hall was going to be a successor because everybody thought he was past it. He couldn't do it again and he could do it again. And he did it again a number of times afterwards. On a lighter note, I thought it was it was amusing that you were told, I think, that he liked, when he came on at the beginning, he liked to show you know, both sides of his face to, to the audience. Right. And, and um, how, how did that sort of come out as you worked on the play? Uh, well, I was tipped off by John Dexter, who said, when Larry comes onto the stage at the beginning of a play, he's rather like an animal let into a cage. And he likes to walk around and sniff out the territory. And he likes to show the audience both sides of his face. And when we began the scene in the rehearsal room, he came on and he was going to sit with a chair with, with Connie Cummings in another chair. And they came on and they had a little affection scene with each other. And then they were to sit at the breakfast table and I suddenly thought it's absurd to ask him to go wandering around the room. So I just said, well, Larry, why don't you sit there? And Connie, you sit there. And they did, and he was very observant and sat down. And then about a week later, when we came back to uh, the scene, he said, I wonder could I have a a daily newspaper over there on my desk? And I said, of course, of course. So the stage management scuttled around and got a newspaper. And then instead of sitting down when I suggested, he went over and got the newspaper, opened it, came down stage, looked to left, to right, crossed to the other side of the stage, looked out the window, then eventually came round and sat down. And I cursed myself for not following John Dexter's advice. But he was very, uh, his rehearsal manners were impeccable. He didn't, he never challenged me or made me feel uncomfortable. I mean, I suppose being a good director is learning to work with those little susceptibilities that that actors have, that that must be part of. Yes, absolutely, except his susceptibilities carried the the authority of him being my boss 
you know, and that, that, that made it quite, that, that was the problem that I had to overcome. I had to overcome the problem of being afraid to open my mouth. And I worked so closely with the other three actors. And Larry, when he wasn't rehearsing, used to go back to his study to work on the administration of the theatre. And then he'd come back to the rehearsal room and he'd see us having a terrific time and getting on very well and doing very good work, I think. And he kind of joined the party. And once that had happened, it all went very well. One thing which you which you come back to several times in the book is that a play can appear wonderful on paper. When you read it, you can think this is a, a surefire success. And yet something happens in the translation. It doesn't it doesn't come alive. And I was really interested in those moments when you talk about a production really coming alive, something happening. Is that is that beyond analysis? Is that just sort of alchemy? That I think it is kind of alchemy. Uh, there are some texts uh, I had to do. I had to do one when I was the National, a play by W. S. Gilbert, the librettist of the Gilbert and Sullivan operas, and it's a very very funny play on the on the page very misanthropic, it's called Engaged, and I read it and I laughed my head off. And yet, on the stage, it doesn't quite work. And there's a Goldsmith play, the, the author of She Stoops to Conquer, called The uh, Something Man, what's it called, I can't remember. Uh, and directors are constantly discovering these two plays and they're reviving them. About every 20 or 30 years, they're revived and they usually fail. I don't know what it is. It's something that, that some sort of energy is not caught by the playwright to see the, to project the play through an entire evening. We said earlier, Michael, that the book covers two eras. It covers the end of the Olivier era and the, the early years of Peter Hall's uh, tenureship. How did Peter Hall come to replace Olivier as um, artistic director of the National Theatre? Well, that was the first thing that really went wrong, I think. And it wasn't Peter Hall's fault, or I don't think it was. But the National hadn't had much success. And then I joined it, and I did a show with John Dexter, co-directed it, which failed, called Tiger. Interesting, interesting piece, but it, it didn't really work. And there were, there were a number of other shows failed. The Good-Natured Man, this goldsmith that John Dexter did, failed. It was a very bad time, and the National was losing a lot of money. And the board were worried, and so they approached, in secret, Peter Hall and offered him the job. He was then running the Royal Opera House with Colin Davis, and suddenly, without any explanation, even to Colin Davis, he'd resigned from the Royal Opera House uh, without a, any reason why. But round about that time, he was offered the, the directorship of the National Theatre. And uh, Larry wasn't told. We were certainly not told. And then in the six months between those meetings and Long Day's Journey and Tonight, which represented a change in our fortunes, suddenly the National was up there where it had always been and having a huge success. But by that time, and, and Olivier hadn't been told. And then he was told a month or two later, but sworn to secrecy. And then eventually we learnt when there was a leak in the Observer newspaper around about Easter that the directorship had gone to. Uh, Peter is not necessarily 
to be blamed for this, but it was a very wrong decision because the, the post should have been advertised. It should, you know, they should have gone through the proper way of filling that job, even if they finally selected Peter. And they didn't. The board thought they knew best. And they were embarrassed because the, the National was now on a, on a roll, you know, and in the, in the last year of Olivier's regime, there was hit after hit after hit. Jonathan Miller did uh, School for Scandal, there was Jumpers, there was Dexter's Productions, The Misanthrope, and Equus. I did uh, 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 The Front Page, and The, uh, the Cherry Orchard, and uh, Macbeth. We were doing sell-out business, and it was ironic. And what did you think it, it, it spelt for you, Peter Hall, taking up this, this post? I mean, after all, you had put a a veiled portrait which might be taken for a portrait of him in the, in the novel that you'd written a few years before. Right. Well, I mean, uh, I, I knew there was a possibility that I might be nominated for the role, but I didn't really want it because I, I don't like administration and I'm too lazy to be... I'm too lazy for that job. You know, I, I can work very hard on my own plays, but I don't like the fact that the, uh, the artistic director's got to attend the rehearsals and the run-throughs of everybody else's work a huge amount of administrative work, a lot of liaison with the press. I don't think I'm very good at it, and I didn't really want to do it. But I did say to myself, if I was offered the post, I would take it, but I didn't want it. And then along came Peter, and I didn't like the way the succession had been handled, but that was more by the board than it was anything to do with Peter Hall. And then he wanted to woo me, and... I'd never been at the end of his very powerful abilities to persuade. And he, I was flattered. He wanted to, he wanted, I subsequently realized, me on board because it would indicate that the, the transition from the Olivier regime to his was sunny and had the approval of all the people who'd worked for Larry. So I agreed to stay on. And he's a very impressive man. There's no doubt. An impresario of genius. And with all the, the, the political capacities that somebody in that position, that the, the job needed. And uh, a very, very hard worker. And I was initially extremely impressed by him. So I didn't go in, I didn't accept the job as an associate director with any degree of resentment or bitterness at all. I was very relieved that somebody was apparently going to do it very well. And particularly the move to the South Bank and all the politics that involved needed somebody who not only was good at that, but enjoyed it. So initially I did not go in with any bitterness. In fact, I, I thought I'd maybe rather misrepresented him in my novel. It's not exclusively a picture of Peter Hall. It's a lot of people I've worked with. But in the public mind, it has been identified with Peter Hall. Yeah. And then I began, you know, with time, I began to be concerned. And there are lots of good stories in the book, Michael, which will we'll allow readers to discover them for themselves. But I thought just, just to take one example of the kind of thing which you felt had, had gone awry was the Don Giovanni idea. Tell me what, what you think that kind of signalled about what was wrong with the, the way the National was, was being run at that point. Peter had the most incredible audacity and he asked for things from the board that no other artistic director would ever have got away with. 
And one of them, which was quite extraordinary, was that he insisted he had the spare capacity to run the Glyndebourne Opera at the same time as he was director of the National Theatre. And as I say in the book, this is rather like the editor of the Times saying he can edit the spectator in his spare moments. It's absurd. Anyway, the board accepted this and he was doing both. And he was going to do a production of Don Giovanni at uh, Glyndebourne. And he then decided he would like to bring this production of Don Giovanni to stage it in the Littleton, in the new building, to transfer it from Glyndebourne so London could see his Don Giovanni. And uh, John Schlesinger was up in arms about this. He thought that the opera already consumed far too much of the Arts Council cake to be given free space in the new theatre. And he got very excited about it and was very opposed to it. I didn't much care one way or another. I, I, I love Mozart and I thought I could stand in the wings and listen to them singing. But we had a meeting of the associates when John expressed his strong aversion to the idea. And we, we've argued it to and, uh, to and fro. And then I think Peter Stevens, who was the sort of business manager of the National, he said, well, what if the opera was to be part of a Don Juan season? What if we were to do play, a series of plays in which Don Juan made an appearance? So we were all sort of rather taken aback by this decision. And so we all sat there trying to think of plays in which Don Juan appeared. And then I, I left that room and then finally we discovered a few and that was, that, that was passed. We would do a Don Juan season. And then I thought, hold on. I mean, the repertoire of plays that a theatre like the National uh, Theatre does is at the very heart of its operation. It accounts for the actors you will engage, the plays that you will do. It accounts for hundreds of thousands of pounds of public money because these plays take these play, productions take a lot to mount. And we are, in order to justify the bringing of an opera into the National Theatre, we are rearranging the repertoire. I thought this was disgraceful. Things really became un intolerable for you just shortly before the move to the South Bank. You felt you, felt you had to say something. You couldn't go, yeah, go on. Yes, and I, I, I was a, a, a great defender of the idea of the National Theatre. And, you know, we were under, we were being closely observed and the National Theatre had its enemies and it had people ready to say that the whole idea is catastrophic because the idea of subsidised art was really only just taking hold. I mean, the National Theatre got a bit, the RSC got a bit, but the, the sums needed for the National in the new building were enormous. So I thought, well, I could resign because I was getting fed up anyway. I was doing fairly bad work and I wasn't doing the plays I really wanted to do and I wondered really why I was there. Uh, so I suppose I was quite sour about that. So I thought I could resign and I could, as it were, blow the whistle on the things that I thought were going wrong. And I thought, well, that, that w will defeat the purpose because I want the National to succeed. So I decided I would write a paper in which I would uh, express all the things that worried me and that I thought were perhaps going in the wrong direction. And then I would read it to, at an associates meeting I would prepare the paper in complete secrecy and confidentiality. I wouldn't let anybody see it except 
a friend of my wife's who never went to the theatre who typed it. And uh, I would read it to the associates and then I would leave them to see if they agree with some or any of my points. And if they didn't, well, I would resign. But I wouldn't make trouble for the National. I would just resign and let them get on with it. But at least I would try to make clear what I thought was wrong. So that's what I did. But in the event, these things never work out the way you hope they're going to work out. And I got into big trouble. You say right at the end of the book that you occasionally bump into Peter Hall. Right. Often at, at memorial services now. Have you played in your mind the possible conversation that you might have after the book is published? Well, no, I don't think he will like the book very much. But on the other hand, it's good that it's come out so late in the day. Because if I'd written it or completed it as soon as I left The National, it would have been rather a a bitter book because The National experience in the public mind and with people who run theatres left me in a very negative position because to begin with, Peter Hall's position was considered the correct one and I was this, you know, malcontent, this Australian outsider who came and made trouble. And it would have been a very different book. But I went on, fortunately, to have a lot of success with shows like Noises Off and the musicals and things I did in America, which completely relieved me of any sense of bitterness about Peter Hall. So it is now written, I don't think with bitterness, with a relish for the drama of it, and with the fact that uh, at the end of the day, we all die, which Peter Hall and I are shortly to do. (laughs) And so I can uh, assume a a, a fairly benevolent attitude to to those events. But but a sense of satisfaction inevitably at having had you say and, and put it on record. You bet, you bet. I was talking to Michael Blakemore. His book, Stage Blood, is out now in hardback. Michael's earlier volume of autobiography, Arguments with England, which describes his life before coming to the National, is available from Faber in paperback. For more information about both titles, go to faber.co.uk. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. And the complete Faber podcast archive is also available on SoundCloud. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.